0: Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, uh, and that's through 1 John 1, 9, confessing our sin, which means simply to admit or acknowledge sin uh, to God the Father, and at that instant we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And so it's that cleansing that's important that's emphasized throughout Scripture, So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can come together to reflect upon your word, reflect upon our lives in light of your word, reflect upon our thinking our motivation, and the direction of our lives. Father, help us to uh, be reminded and focus on the fact that we're living today in light of eternity. Our life today is not focused on just uh, meeting needs and fulfilling hopes and dreams for this life, but focusing on that which has eternal significance and eternal value. Father, we pray that you would... Help us to understand the significance of what Peter is saying in these opening verses of 1 Peter and how they impact each one of us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Right, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. And the backdrop for so much of this is a doctrine we've studied a lot in the past. We haven't focused a lot on this in a few years. We spent quite a bit of time in our study of Hebrews. Uh, we also spent some time in James, that was long before I came to West Houston Bible Church, but those uh, audio lessons are up on the on the internet and that provides a lot of backdrop as well as in uh, studies in the upper room discourse in John uh, fifteen and in uh, as well as in first john so there 's a lot of material out there. one of the nice things about the Uh, Dean Bible Ministries' website is all the, and I use this all the time, all the transcripts, and then you can search for key phrases and words through those transcripts and find just a a wealth, uh, wealth of material. So, like I usually do when I study anything, sometimes I go back and I look at what I've taught before. And I always try to look at it from a fresh perspective and and drill down on some areas that I might not have looked at quite so much in the past. And this is a key verse because when, in all the different times that I have done a study on inheritance, we always come back to this particular verse in 1 Peter 1, 4, that we have an inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven, an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and fadeth not away, as the New King James Version says. You know what they call the New King James Version? The Bible. I always like that that rhythm of and the cadence of the King James and New King James. And the reason for that is because it, when the King James was translated, it was translated by the it was intentionally translated by the translators. So that it could be read out loud, so that it would, they paid attention to the rhythm and the cadence of the language. Sometimes it's not always translated, uh, as correctly or precisely, let, let me say, as we would like. But it has that rhythm and cadence. That's why so many people find it easy to memorize. But you read in some of the modern translations like the NIV or even the New American Standard, they don't quite have that rhythm, they don't have the, the, the beauty of the uh of the English language, and of course the King James Version was, at the time it was translated, which was roughly the same time as Shakespeare, was when English was really coming into its own as a language, so there's just a beauty to uh, to the language that's there. Uh, but we ha- always have to make sure we understand it in the English. And reading is so important, just reading your Bible over and over again and reading in large chunks. So I hope that uh, one of the things you can develop as we're studying in First Peter, we'll be in Peter for a while, as you know, and uh, also our study in Samuel is reading these books over and over uh, so that you can get a good grasp of the flow of events and what's what 's taking place uh, in in both of those books as well as in Matthew on Sunday morning, so as we 've looked at this, we looked at this sal- opening salutation and then the first part of first uh, Peter down through about uh, at least verse probably down to about verse seventeen i haven 't convinced myself where the break occurs, but somewhere around uh, 17 to 21 is where we'll have a break for our introduction to this uh, to this epistle. Peter is emphasizing a major theme, and a major theme is how we as believers are to handle suffering and adversity. And I think the suffering that his recipients are experiencing is not persecution. Time after time when I read these various commentaries, they all talk as if they're facing persecution. I think they're facing just personal opposition, not, a, not an empire or government-sponsored persecution, but just the rejection from friends and family. It's primarily a Jewish audience that has uh, accepted Jesus as Messiah, and just as we saw in our study of Acts, that uh, Paul and his companions experienced quite a hostile uh, reaction from the Jewish community. Although many trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, those who didn't reacted in hostility towards, towards Paul. He was beaten. He was thrown in prison. Uh, he was run out of town. Uh, he was reviled and uh, slandered many times. And so this was the same kind of thing that we could see taking place among these Jewish background believers that Peter's addressing. So in the opening section, we looked at this. I'm going to read this. This is one sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept, by the power of God, through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And as I pointed out the last time, we have three phrases here, living hope, reserved in heaven, and revealed in the last time, that focus our attention away from the here and now to God's God's ultimate goal in our lives. God saved us for a purpose. He didn't save us so, so that we could have a happy and meaningful life. There was a track that came out back in the 70s called "How to Have a Happy, Happy and Meaningful Life," and so often Christian uh, evangelism tracks sort of use happiness and meaning as a as a catch, but. God is not saving us so that our lives can be happy and wonderful right now although if you're oriented to the word no matter what your circumstances are your life you will have maximum happiness and joy in your life but the focus is on what where God is taking us in terms of the long game and preparing us to rule and reign with Christ in his future kingdom and preparing us for uh, to have the capacity for for enjoying the eternal life that we're going to have forever and ever with Him. And so the focus is, not, it, what Peter is doing here is taking people's focus off of the problems of the here and now, the fiery trial that is coming upon them, and to focus their attention on where God is taking them. And this is what I've captured in the phrase that we have to have a uh, personal sense of our eternal destiny. It's not a sense just of our destiny because a lot of people think that uh, orients them to their destiny in this life. It's the eternal destiny that the Lord has for us. And hope does that because hope focuses on uh, the future. It's the a certain conviction of the end game. Reserved in heaven means that we're not going to realize this inheritance until we're in heaven, until we're glorified, until we're face-to-face with the Lord, and it is revealed in the last time. Now, another key word that we see cropping up in verse 5 is that word salvation, and I've got to warn you that we have to be careful with this word because it doesn't always mean justification. And Sometimes it has to do with glorification. We, the word saved is used in three senses, as I've pointed out many times. We're saved from the penalty of sin when we trust Christ as Savior and we're justified. We're saved from the presence of sin when we uh, live out our spiritual life and we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the sin nature. And then we're saved from the Uh, We're saved from the power of sin, rather, in the Christian life, and then we're saved from the presence of sin when we're glorified. So there's those three tenses of salvation, as some people have called it, three phases of salvation, three ways that word is used. So we have to see, well, what is uh, uh, Peter talking about in verse 5? This salvation that's revealed in the last time that seems to be orienting us towards phase three, glorification, not phase one, justification. So we're looking at this next verse. We finished up with verse three last time, and now we're at verse four. And verse four begins with this phrase, to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That first word that we see there as to, translated as to, is the greek preposition eis, eis and that indicates a direction it often indicates a a god's plan or god's purpose what god is directing us to and so it is translated as to or toward something and that's the direction that god is taking us toward might be a better way of, of translating that to capture that idea toward this inheritance now this word for inheritance in this context is the greek word kleronomia and kleronomia is a noun and it it, it is usually translated inheritance but it also has the idea of of possession the idea of possession And this is important to understand because when we think of the word inheritance, people think of the fact that this is something that somebody receives upon the death of someone else. Someone dies and their property, their possessions are then passed on to their heir. So clearly in English it even has this idea where it focuses on property or possession, but that's really the primary idea that we have in the biblical term both in terms of the greek and in terms of the old testament terminology the focus is on a possession something that is owned something that is uh, that is the property of an individual so it focuses more on this ownership idea and possession idea than it does on the idea of something being transferred at the time of death of another person. Now as we go through this, we see that we are saved to or toward this inheritance, and this possession that is ours is then described by three adjectives, and we sort of lose this in the uh, wonderful thundering diction of the King James, because the King James translates the third word with a uh, prepositional clause that does not fade away, but, but there's a certain rhythm in the way it's written in the Greek. It's incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. You have three adjectives linked by conjunction, so it has a rhythm to it in, in the Greek. It's uh, uh, incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. So I'm going to put these up here on the right side of the slide so you can see each one of these particular words. Now, the first now, each of these words, as you'll notice, begins in the, in, the, uh, in the Greek with that letter a, which is the negative prefix that you have in Greek, like the English pr- prefix un. So if you think that something is not something, you put that word, that prefix un on it. So if it's necessary, uh, if it's not necessary, then you say it's unnecessary, so that's the English equivalent to that, um, that, that alpha, uh, privative, that, uh, A at the beginning. And the first word basically refers to something that is imperishable. It's describing our future incorruptible body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's a contrast between this body of corruption and the incorruptible body that we get in our resurrection body. It's also used to describe God in his eternal state, that he is imperishable or immortal. But it's used in 1 Corinthians 9.25 in a similar context to what we have. In 1 Corinthians 9, that's that passage where Paul is talking, using a metaphor of racing, uh, of a foot race to uh, characterize the Christian life, that we are all in a race. We're running, running to win a prize just like an Olympic runner runs to win a prize, but in the ancient Greek world they would win a prize that was a a laurel leaf or an oak leaf or an oak wreath, rather, or a laurel wreath, and this was something that would quickly perish in a few days. That would uh, begin to wilt and turn brown and die. So the contrast is between the perishable crown we get in any kind of contest we're in today, whether it's achieving, uh, achieving a goal at work or achieving academic goals or achieving uh, any kind of financial goals, not that these are wrong, but those are just temporal and temporary, and they have no eternal significance. But the Christian life is focused on uh, receiving an imperishable crown, something that we are given as an award or a reward for obedience and for spiritual growth. So this ties in, and will connect with the same uh, idea that Peter's talking about here, that we will receive this reward for our spiritual growth, our spiritual service in this life, and that that is given to us, uh, and it's going to be different for every believer. There are different rewards uh, for different believers, usually under this metaphor of a crown. The second word that you use, the first is it's incorruptible. That it, and it, it's it, and it also has the idea of, of the of fact that it goes on forever. It's undefiled. Now this is a fun little word. It's the Greek word noun amiantos, amiantos, and it comes from a verb meino, which means to be defiled. And that's really how it's used. There's there's some ways in which it was used. And I don't always find references to this as I comb through article after article. Everybody agrees that this is a ritual term, and and it's the difference between that which is holy and that which is common. That which is common is defiled. It's tainted by sin. It's not set apart to the use of God. That which is holy is that which is set apart to God. That's the biblical connotation here. Uh, and the idea of this noun, it's amiantas, which means it's not defiled. It, it, it is therefore something that is oriented and consistent to the character of God and his righteousness and justice. So it's amiantas, and this word amiantas is used to describe the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews seven twenty-six. It's used to describe the purity of sexual relations within marriage in Hebrews thirteen four, And it's used to describe that which it is translated in James, pure and undefiled religion. In James 1, it's the true, accurate application of the word in the spiritual life. But like I said, the root of this word refers to that which is defiled. And it's used, interestingly, in a couple of passages in Scripture that I thought I would just take a moment for us to look at. One is Titus 1.15. Now, I want you to think about this and see if you can think of any examples uh, in our contemporary culture related to this. To the pure, all things are pure. That's talking about as a believer, when you're oriented to doctrine, you think in terms of that which is uh, related to God. You think of that which is true and honest and righteous and virtuous. You think in terms of that which is uh, best in a person, but to those who are defiled, and by this it uses that word meino, and it indicates that which is corrupted or stained by sin. That's the primary meaning for the word meino: is that which is stained. Like we can think of sta- uh, a stained glass window, or we can think of something that has uh, wood if you working with furniture. You you put certain chemicals on it, and it permanently stains that that wood a particular color. So it has to do with with something that is stained. Those who are stained, that is, those who are corrupt by sin and unbelieving, that is, they're not believers, nothing is pure. They think only within that corrupt, fallen mindset and then Paul goes on to say, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. So here you have people, and we often see this today, people who are not believers are cynical, they are skeptical, they are hostile to believers, and so whenever they hear of somebody who is talking about their Christianity or emphasizing their the importance of their relationship with God, they're scoffers, they're, They they ridicule it. And they can 't understand it because it is so foreign for them because they have perverted their own thinking it 's been become corrupted by 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 sin, and so they they can 't understand people who do have a conscience we 're seeing this more and more in our society as a result of, we 've seen it really flare up with the result of of this uh, same sex marriage uh, issue that has uh, developed in the last month is that those who uh, agree with this ju- are, are, are caricaturing those who disagree with it and they're hostile and angry uh, towards, towards Christians and you have, uh, you have the same kind of thing in relation to the abortion debate in fact um, uh, Hillary Clinton in a speech back in April in relation to abortion says that, 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 that people who have firm religious convictions against it just need to change doesn't that make you feel warm all over? To have politicians say, you can't believe that. You can't believe different from me. There's an innate hostility to the First Amendment there. You, you, people who believe differently than Hillary Clinton need to change. Of course, my response was, why didn't she change? Why do I have to change? You know, But, but see, people don't think that way when, when they get polarized this way. So for the person who's defiled and unbelieving... Nothing is pure, and they can't understand it. Even their mind and conscience is so defiled. Their conscience is defiled. So they're thinking within a framework of reverse polarities. What is good for them is bad. What is bad for them is good. That's how they think. And we need to understand that whenever we are talking with or trying to evangelize or witness to people like that, we need to understand where, what the dynamics of their thinking is all about so that we can then use that in the way we ask questions of them in order to expose how they can't live consistently with, with their own reversed uh, or, or perverted conscience. And ultimately, as we talk to people, those kinds of inconsistencies are going to be exposed. Another way uh, that this word is used is in Hebrews twelve fifteen, and this is a warning to believers in a warning passage in Hebrews 12 that we are to look carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation. It means that we, we depart from grace orientation in our thinking. And that when we depart from grace, orientation, and humility, uh, the result is that we're going to give in to sin, the sin nature control. As soon as we quit thinking in terms of the framework of grace, we're thinking in terms of some sort of works, we're thinking in terms of arrogance, and so there is an illustration that comes out of this in relation to Esau, but in this particular verse it just says, uh, that we're to be careful lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. That is, fail to be gracious and grace-oriented in their behavior. And a result of that is when we shift away from grace, we start treating people in terms of works, and we can react in anger and uh, bitterness and resentment towards somebody who doesn't behave the way we think they ought to behave. And mental attitude sins then become the root. Sins of all kinds of overt sins. So we get into passages like uh, Galatians 5:21. We discover that a lot of sins are are not just mental attitude sins. They're sins of uh, of the tongue, slander, and they're sins that cause division and divisiveness and all kinds of trouble. And what does this do? One individual sin then starts conspiring with others, and as you ridicule, slander. Uh, Others, as you talk, uh, as you spread gossip, uh, this causes others to be brought into that network of sin. So that's one of the dangers of the sins of the tongue. So the inheritance is, first of all, it it, uh, can't be corrupted. Second, it can't be defiled. That means it is totally oriented to God and is consistent with God's integrity and His righteousness. And third, it's unfading. It does not fade away. That's the word amarantas, which simply means not to fade. It's from the root. It's just the negation of the root, meaning something that fades. This is the only place that it's used in the New Testament. And so it just indicates it has an eternal value to it that is as important and significant and valuable uh, 10,000 years from now as it is now. And you can go on through in an, an eternity and it will never become diminished at all. And this is the same kind of thing that Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, that we're to lay up or store for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. See, it's incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. We can't lose it. It is always ours. So Jesus refers to that as a priority. We're to focus on, uh, not that it's wrong to make sure that you can uh, provide for your family and have savings and insurance policies and all of those things that take care of temporal needs, which are important, but that's not the ultimate Controlling priority of life. The controlling priority of life is that we have uh, an inheritance that will be ours forever, and that's related to the spiritual life. Matthew 5 11, and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. So, this too relates to the uh, situation, the sit rep here in the uh, context of 1 Peter. Is that he's dealing with believers who are going to be reviled and persecuted by their friends, their families, their co workers. And so he's, uh, Jesus says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. And there's a lot that is being said about negatively about Christians in some, uh, some papers, some contexts, and some, uh some news media outlets because those horrible Christians just won't let us get away with whatever kind of perversion that we want. They are always saying that something is wrong. And you know, it's very interesting that when you think about uh, about how the secularist approaches things and the secularist in business says, well, well you Christian, you just need to get rid of that this this false morality that you have. Well, how much of that false reality do I have to get rid of? That, that false morality, how much of that do I have to get rid of? What about that part of my morality that, that makes me handle the company's money in a manner that it has integrity and that I don't uh, steal or mismanage the company's funds? You want me to get rid of that morality too? What about the morality that keeps me from... Uh, from slandering and gossiping about other people and coworkers and creating division and a, a, and breaking down the morale of the company, does that mean that that i need to uh, I need to get rid of that part of the morality too so you have we have a packaged morality here, so you want me to pick and ch- you choose what part of that i 'll keep and what part i don 't why can 't I just keep the whole morality? see we need to learn to think in those kinds of uh, tactical terms when we're being pressured by a secular culture to throw away the kinds of things that they think shouldn't be there and help them understand that, no, morality is necessary for a culture to survive. There has to be a a consistent morality that's based on something outside of that culture. Otherwise, you're going to see the the economics of a company or the economics of a nation just fall apart. So Jesus says, when people are persecuting you, rejoice. How many times have you seen Christians rejoicing over the hostility towards Christianity that we're seeing in the, developing in this country in the last month or so? Uh, we ought to be rejoicing over that. This is going to give us great opportunities to witness. You know, some of us may end up having tremendous prison ministries. We never know how it's going to work out. Great opportunities, rejoice, and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Too often I think we've gotten sucked into this thinking in our culture that we're just living the American dream, and it's all about pursuing our own prosperity and, and significance and security, and that somehow this, this the angelic conflict and the um, the development of of uh, persecution from a government just just isn 't part of it we 've we've gotten so focused on the here and now that we 've forgotten what the long game is ephesians 1.18, Paul said Paul is praying and he 's praying that God would open the eyes of our understanding that 's just talking about enlightenment of the soul to the truth of scripture that you may know what is the hope of his calling. There's that word we studied in Ephesians 1-3, hope focusing us on a uh, long-term uh, confident expectation, the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, that there is an eternal wealth that is ours, if we walk with the Lord and pursue spiritual maturity in this life. So what we learn about this inheritance is three things. It's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. It's permanent. It's ours forever. But there's one other thing that we learn about this, and that is that it's reserved in heaven for us. And this is the uh, Greek word tereo over here. And what's significant about it is that it's in the perfect tense. Now, I know a lot of folks uh, get a little confused over grammar, kind of like some folks get confused over numbers and mathematics. But the perfect tense refers to something that is completed action. That means it's, it's already secure. It's not something that's ongoing action or ongoing action in the past, but something that is completed and determined. So that this inheritance has already been reserved it's been set aside for each of us in heaven and that it means that that god has already set aside that which he desires to distribute to us when we come to the judgment seat of christ the problem is that for those who fail to persevere in obedience some of those rewards are not going to be distributed. They're ours, but they're not given to us because we didn't uh, develop the capacity for them, and they'll ultimately be destroyed in the lake of fire. And that's another part of this doctrine. So what we need to do is because this uh, this connects back with... Fix this microphone. This connects back to uh, really understanding the whole framework of this section... We need to understand what the Bible teaches about inheritance. We haven't gone down this road in a while. I've changed up a few things and, uh, just to try to clarify this a little more. But this idea of inheritance is found throughout, uh, throughout both Old and New Testament. And basically what this is teaching is that we are going to possess certain things for eternity. There are some things that every believer is going to possess in common. We're all going to have a resurrection body. We're all going to have an unbelievable capacity for uh, happiness and joy. Uh, There's going to be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. The old things have passed away. We're going to be with the Lord in, in heaven and in the kingdom and on into eternity. But there are going to be some differences as well. Some people are going to have a greater capacity for their relationship with the Lord, and so they're going to have a closer communion with the Lord in heaven. Others will not experience that same closeness. Uh, One of the best ways to describe it is that every person's cup is going to be filled. Some people are just going to have a larger cup than other people but everybody will be filled to capacity and no one will be aware of any kind of a sense of absence or loss or something that's not quite totally full. Everyone's cup will be completely full. And this doctrine of inheritance is also a motivator for us. It is to teach us that that we do have a reason to live the spiritual life because there is an end game that is going to give us Uh, certain privileges and responsibilities for serving the Lord when we get to heaven. We get to honor him. That's that's why we must develop this in this life, is the more we learn to honor and glorify the Lord in the difficulties of this life, the more that's going to be significant, that capacity will be developed when we get to be with him uh, in eternity. Now, it's always fun. It's always important to start off looking at words. Defining terms is really important. And so when we begin looking at this, we're going to look at this this whole word group in the Greek. We'll talk about the Hebrew a little later on. Uh, this sense uh, that the root is K-L-E-R. Uh, kleros and Klerao are, are root nouns. And then the three or, or, excuse me, the four key words that we see related to this doctrine, the New Testament are listed there. Uh, kleronomeo is the verb for inherit. Kleronimia is a noun meaning inheritance. Kleronomas is a noun that refers to the heir, the one that receives the inheritance. And soon kleronomas means a fellow heir or joint heir. We're joint heirs with Christ, joint heirs with God. And so that word comes into uh, into play. And when we look at the usage of this word, Uh, Kleronameo, the verb is used 18 times in the New Testament. It refers to a birthright in Galatians 4.30 and Hebrews 1.4, which one enters by virtue of sonship. That means so when you are adopted into the royal family of God, there is an inheritance that is ours. When we're adopted at that instant, there is an inheritance that is ours that is common to every believer. We become heirs of eternal life we are We are given eternal life that cannot be taken away from you. so that's part of what we have is our inheritance as a son, and that really buys into the whole uh the whole imagery there talks about sonship, not because that's some sort of sexist term, and there's no nothing like daughtership but because this was the way it was described in the Roman Empire. It was the son who is the one who receives the property and the title of the parent. And this can come through adoption as well. And there's a whole doctrine of adoption. The word cloronomeo also describes property that's received as a gift. Okay, there's a difference between something we get as a gift, like eternal life, and something that we receive as a reward and one of the things that um, that we have to learn is that that salvation is a gift but and, and is freely given but rewards are earned i go over that again and again every year uh, every other year when i go to uh, go to kiev i teach on the doctrine of rewards and judgment and that's what i'm going to be covering again this next uh, this next january and it's important to understand that something that rewards are given for service but salvation is a free gift so salvation is free freely given and rewards are earned so property though in passages like Hebrews 1:14 and Hebrews 6:12 uh prop- property is received as a gift in those passages in contrast to a reward, again emphasizing that some aspect of inheritance is a free gift and related to every believer. Also, a third thing is that uh, property uh, is received on the condition of obedience to certain conditions in 1 Peter 3.9. That means that there's some aspects of the inheritance that are given only when we're obedient, There's a condition placed upon those. So some aspect of the inheritance is a free gift. Some aspect of the inheritance is a reward for for obedience and for service. And then the fourth point there is that reward is based on meeting certain conditions and following certain activities. So there can be a loss of reward, not a loss of all inheritance, but a loss of some inheritance. So this is just doing a basic word study. Now, one thing that we see, just a couple of passages, we'll talk about them a little more, is passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and Galatians five twenty one. In both of these passages, we have a list of various sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 talks about the unrighteous, and these unrighteous are described as fornicators and idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, all these are different sins. Some are sins of the flesh, some are sins of the tongue, some are mental attitude sins. And these sins, though, the person who continues living and having a life characterized by these sins runs the risk of not inheriting the kingdom. Now, we have to ask, what does that mean to inherit the kingdom? Because a lot of people think inheriting the kingdom means entering into heaven when you die. And so you'll see, and this is something that, that verses like 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5, uh, 21, are verses that are often on placards uh, outside of courtrooms dealing with same-sex marriage and and in some of these uh, uh, gay pride. Notice the key word there, pride, showing the arrogance of uh, of the homosexuals at uh, these uh, gay pride events, you'll see Christians standing out there holding up placards with these verses on there. And what they come across saying is if you're committing homosexuality, you can't be saved. That's how they're interpreting that passage. And they're dead wrong. And and that is just just legalism because they misunderstand the concept of the kingdom and they misunderstand the concept of inheritance. They think inheriting the kingdom... Uh, means that you, if you do these things, you're not going to get saved. Well, if you do, doing these things means you can't get saved, then nobody should have a prison ministry. Because there you have thieves and murderers, and you have all, uh, you know those who commit fraud. Uh, and if they can't in, inherit the kingdom, then, then why go have a prison ministry? The gospel of grace means that Christ paid the penalty for sin. So that sin penalty is paid for, so that they can have eternal life. But if we don't grow to maturity, then we won't have an inheritance in the kingdom. We will be present in the kingdom, but there won't be a there won't be an inheritance. There won't be property. There won't be a possession. There won't be these rewards uh, of responsibilities and um, and and ver- various other. Uh, functions in the kingdom. So the same kind of thing is found in Galatians 5.21, where we have a list of sins of the flesh, starting in verse 20, and concluding with the fact that say, where Paul says, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice those things, not those who do those things, but those who proso in the Greek practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean that they don't, can't have eternal life because Christ paid the penalty for those sins, therefore they can be justified. It means that this is going to impact your inheritance at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. 1 Peter uh, 3 9 is a passage that uses this same word, cleronameo, where Peter says, We're not to be returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. So when somebody is just ripping you up, then you need to respond with something positive, with a blessing, a positive statement, eulogetos, uh, a, a, a good statement, because you know that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. See, it's conditional there. If if every time you're reviled, you res, you revile in return, then you won't inherit a blessing. It's conditioned upon. How you respond, so we need to understand that's part of the fruit of the spirit. The second key word as I pointed out earlier is uh, the noun uh, kleronomia and it's used fourteen times in the New Testament it's used two times in Hebrews related to the promise of the eternal inheritance uh, in nine fifteen and in hebrews eleven eight the promise of the land as an inheritance to Abraham now that's important because Uh, now because Abraham never owned the land he's given the land as an inheritance but the only thing he ever owned there was the cave of Machpelah which is where he was buried and Sarah was buried and Isaac and and Rebekah and uh, Jacob and Leah are buried there and you can go to that today it's located down in Hebron so this word uh, talks about that, that property Abraham will realize it in the kingdom so it's used this way in passages like uh, Ephesians 5.5 5 and Galatians 3.18 and Hebrews 11.8. But what I want you to notice from these verses is how in Galatians 3.18 and in Hebrews 11.8, it's connected to promise. Promise is something that is that is guaranteed to take place in the future. Again, what we see is that God wants us to get our minds off of the here and now We're worrying about this week, next week, next month, next year, but focus on the fact that we're living our life today in light of eternity. We're living for the long game, focusing on how we're going to rule and serve with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom and on into eternity. And so there's this connection between the promise, realizing the promise, and our inheritance Uh, Colossians 3.24 is a key verse here that connects inheritance with both reward and service, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now remember, a reward is something that's earned. So if salvation's a free gift, it's not identical to a reward. A reward is earned, but salvation's a free gift. So he's, he's, he's motivating, he's encouraging the uh, Colossian believers to walk in obedience and to pursue spiritual maturity, that they can receive that reward of the inheritance. And how? why do they get that? Because they serve the Lord, and our life needs to be focused on serving the Lord. Each day when we wake up, we need to think, how am I going to serve the Lord today? Now, we serve the Lord in a lot of different ways. You can work for a company, and you serve the Lord in whatever company you uh, whatever company you work for. You can serve the Lord in your business. You can serve the Lord in terms of ways in which you have a ministry at the local church. You can serve the Lord in your family. You can serve the Lord in any area of life where you're involved. We're to do all things for the glory of God. So we're serving the Lord in every single area, in every every capacity, so that our life reflects the fact that we have this relationship with the Lord. So for that, when we walk with the Lord in the filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, then that is foundational to uh, to being rewarded. And then the passage we're looking at, 1 Peter one four, is another one. Then the third, third noun that's used is kleronimos, referring to the heir, And we see passages like Romans 4.13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Notice again, we have this connection between promise and heir in Romans 4.13. God promised Abraham something, but again, he has to live in light of that long game. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob owned nothing in the land. They never realized that land promise. That's the long game. Hebrews 4:14. 4, uh, 4, For those who have the law are heirs. Faith is made void, and the promises are no effect. Paul's argument there is that it's based on walking by faith. Now we walk by faith and not by sight, but that walk by faith has to be connected to the command of Galatians 5:16 that we walk by means of the Spirit. It's not just saying, "Okay, I'm going to do what the what the Bible says." I have to walk by means of the Spirit. It's got to be spiritually empowered in this life. And then a passage we've looked at many times, and this depends on how we punctuate it. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Okay, but we're two kinds of heirs. This is where we see the two categories. First of all, we're heirs of God. That applies to every believer, and it's not conditioned. But notice... The second kind, joint heirs with Christ, is conditioned on suffering with him. Well, let's go back to where we were. See if we can get back there. What happened? Okay. See, we're, we're joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him. Now, some people have really kind of truncated or odd ideas of suffering suffering simply means that you're not getting uh, having the life of comfort that you think you ought to have and it's when you are being opposed in the devil's world for your walk with the Lord and so suffering with Christ may not involve something as huge and overt as government persecution it just may mean that you have an environment where you're with coworkers or with friends and they may you know slight you a little bit because you're a Christian. Every now and then you just sort of get that undercurrent where you're not quite as acceptable because well, you know, you're 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 a Christian so there's some things that that you don't really enjoy in life that somehow you're a, you're a second class person because you're you're a Christian and that comes across and you know what i mean by that that and, and around the family uh family table at thanksgiving or christmas you're the odd one out because you're the christian and you're not with us that's suffering uh under the way the bible treats suffering so if we're not walking with the lord and pursuing spiritual maturity then we're going to run into opposition we're going to run into people who reject us people who revile us, people who may uh, take it to even greater extremes than that. So that's a condition, though, for being a joint heir with Christ. Joint heir with Christ and heir of God are not synonymous. That's the way it's usually punctuated, as if uh, all children are both heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But that's not how the, the, the grammar is structured. Okay, now what I've done here simply is just look at those three main words, the verb, the noun for inheritance, and the noun for an heir, and uh, just looking at that and what those words teach us about this uh, this whole idea of inheritance. Now, the second point in this, and I've got about 12 points total, so we'll be finishing this up next week. Inherit has the core semantic meaning. Isn't that nice language? The core idea in this whole word group is the idea of possession or property or ownership. It's what we have as ours, what we own. And biblically speaking, property can be passed on with the death of a person, but that's supplied from the context. It primarily refers to that which is owned by someone. So nobody had to die for Abraham to be given the possession of the promised land. And many, many times you have the word used without um, the connotation of someone dying and passing on the property uh, to their family. For example, in Hebrews 11.8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as a, and if you translate it possession, then you'll catch the main idea there, which he would receive as a possession. And he went out, that's when he left Ur the Chaldees, not knowing where he was going. Another verse in Hebrews 1-2, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now, nobody had to die for Jesus to receive uh, all things as an inheritance. It's his possession as a reward for having served in the capacity of the Redeemer of all mankind, according to the according to the context. So he's rewarded with that possession. Third point is that certain categories of people lived in the land. This word has to be understood not just in terms of a Greek culture, but really in terms of the Old Testament culture of Israel. How is it used in the Old Testament? And what we see in the Old Testament is that while every tribe had a possession Read the last half of Joshua sometime. It's like a real estate contract. It describes the borders and boundaries of every tribal allotment. And each tribe received a certain amount of real estate that was theirs and that was to stay within the possession of the clans uh, and the families of that tribe. But there's one group of people that did not have a possession in the land. They lived in the land. They had a blessing in the land, but they didn't own anything in the land. Well, one group were the sojourners, those who were strangers or those who were non-Jewish, who were just living in um, in, in the land, and they were the they were the Gentiles. But a special group were the Levites. The Levites represented a a tribe of of, of Israel. Levi was a son of of Jacob, but the Levites did not have a land allotment to them. And this is described in passages like, uh, Exodus 12, uh, 48 numbers, 18, 20, uh, and it describes, uh, their, their presence in the land, uh, Exodus 12, 48, if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. That's an interesting, it just hit me today that according to the law, uh, if you're not circumcised, you better not take up that that uh, invitation from your Jewish friends to come over for to celebrate a seder meal at Passover. Just warning you right now. So, but that's that's according to the law. So if you were a Gentile, you could not participate at a seder meal unless you were uh, circumcised. So there's a difference between the Gentile, the sojourner, the alien, uh, who's not part of the tribe, uh, part of Israel. Uh, Numbers 18:20. the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance. Now here's the Hebrew word, Nahal, which means to inherit or possess. Uh, so Aaron, Aaron is a Levite and it's the descendants of Aaron as we studied in uh, 1 Samuel uh, this last Tuesday night and several weeks ago, the descendants of Aaron provide the high priest for Israel. You shall have no inheritance or Nahal in the land, nor own any portion among them. Who's the inheritance here? This is what's fascinating. God, and we'll see the same truth in the New Testament, God is our inheritance. So when we talk about what do all believers have in common, we all have God as our inheritance. He is our possession. That relationship with God is true for every believer. Uh, so here we God says, I'm your portion, helech, which is, we've studied the word meros in the New Testament. That's a share or portion. I'm your portion uh, and your inheritance, nachala, uh, among the sons of Israel. Numbers eighteen twenty-four. for the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I've given to the Levites for an inheritance. So they didn't have land. But every every year, as part of the tithe, which was like a tax, ten percent tax on the nation, to take care of uh, took care of uh, a, a, a little bit of a safety net for widows and orphans, but it also provided the finances for the priests and the Levites. In Hebrews 11:13, and 21:33 and 35:27. We realize that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had no ownership in the land. They lived in the land. They had blessing from living in the land, but they didn't own the land. In the same way, there are going to be believers in the kingdom, church age believers in the kingdom, who are in the kingdom, enjoy all the blessings of the kingdom, but because of failure to live for the Lord in this life, they're going to lose rewards. They won't receive any rewards. And so they will miss out on a lot of the privileges and responsibilities uh, in the kingdom. Now, I'll wrap up with this last point, the fourth point. Inheritance in relation to Abraham can be related to either the land promise or the seed promise. But it's always related to the idea of promise. Promise always focuses our attention on the end game. Uh, we see this usage in Galatians 3.18, the inheritance is of the law. It is if, if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. In other words, it's it's not something now. It's something that will be fulfilled later on the basis of faith. God gave it to Abraham by promise. Same thing stated in Romans 4.13, the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So I'm going to stop there, and we'll come back and start up with the fifth point uh, next time in understanding this critical doctrine of inheritance. We have to understand that Old Testament concept so that we can understand the New Testament concept because this is integral to our spiritual life. What are we living the spiritual life for today? Is it just so that somehow life is going to be better and we're going to have a happy, meaningful life? Are we living it today in light of eternity that what we're doing today has eternal consequences? The volitional decisions we make today, how we order our time, how we order our finances, how we take care of the, our disposable uh, income and, uh, you know, the friends that we have, the social life, how we handle that is related to where things are going to go in, in terms of our rewards and inheritance in the kingdom. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect on these things this evening and to focus on the fact that we're living today in light of eternity. We need to get our eyes off of now and on to the future and let the end game impact our, our focus, our priorities, uh, that which is of value today. Father, we pray that you would help us to focus on this incorruptible, undefilable uh, inheritance that will never fade away.